Uh, back when I was youth pastor, we had a young man, 18 years old, who fought a tremendous battle against cancer and died. He was an amazing kid and even said, either God heals me and I win or I die and I still win. How do you get an 18-year-old kid to say and believe that, you know? So anyhow, um, his mom at the gravesite used to keep a journal there. So when people came, they could write a message to the family, a prayer, whatever you want to do. So every so often, I would go there and just try to, you know, if I didn't see them, I'd leave a message. So one day, it was like we had this torrential downpour. And I had planned on going, so I said, I'm going today. Anyhow, rain stopped. And so I'm walking to his uh, gravesite, and I walked over a grave that had just been filled. And I actually fell in, up to my knees. Boom. And I looked down, I could see where the water had run. It was going further. I was like, oh, man, I got to get out of here. <laughs> so I ran out of that grave. <laughs> yeah. And in reality, that really happened to me in life, man. I was so lost and dead that Jesus had to rescue me. <laughs> so... Praise God for that. I want to welcome you this morning. Pastor Tony's away today, and uh, so you have me. <laughs> yeah. Now, thanks. Okay, it's going to cost me, I know, afterward. I've got a lot of singles I'll hand out. Okay. Have you ever noticed on certain products, they have strange warnings on them? For example, on a wheelbarrow, the warning, not intended for highway use. A child's baby stroller is labeled with the warning, do not fold the baby inside. A Vidal Sassoon hairdryer says, do not use while sleeping. Good advice. Uh, one brand of chainsaw warns the users not to hold the wrong end of the saw. A child's clothing label reads, wash inside out and remove the baby before washing. And then there's that brand of toilet cleaner that says, it's safe to use around children and animals. However, it's not recommended that either drink from the toilet. That's bad parenting. Okay. And last but not least is a bottle of drain opener has a label on a warning. If you can't read, do not use this product. <laughs> now, there's some reasons why these labels exist. First of all, uh, the main reason is because of lawsuits, frivolous lawsuits. And, and so that, that's happening. And then along the way, uh, you know, someone somewhere, somehow, actually tried it, and it, they found out it wasn't a good idea, so uh, they did foolish things, and these warnings exist uh, because of somebody's previous error, and that helps us, and we learn as a result of that. And the Bible's filled with the spiritual warnings. There are countless examples of people uh, who face serious consequences as a result of their actions. So we're beginning a two-week study today in one of the most neglected books in the whole New Testament. It's a complicated piece of scripture, and you'll see as I get into it. And even though it's brief, it's not easy reading. And I won't ask how many have skipped over this book. Now, the title of this little book takes its name on uh, from the author, the epistle or the book of, of Jude. It's only one chapter and 25 verses, but he packs a whole lot in that book. I actually have never heard a sermon on the book of Jude. I haven't. I don't remember. I couldn't recall. Uh, and, I've, you know, people have referenced it, but I never heard like a, you know, topical study done on it. And a matter of fact, um, 
when I knew it was going to be two weeks, I said, oh, and I want to do a two-week series, so I'm here next week, so, if, I mean, you can, <laughs> if it's not good today, just <laughs> stay home. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Next week is like, I, I love, I, I can't wait to get to next week. I wanted to do the whole book in one week because it ends with a blast, but uh, I, I, I couldn't do it. And, and so when I thought about a two-week uh, study, I was like, I looked at the book of Judah. I said, wow, it's short. I can do two weeks. I have never done it. It'll be challenging to me, you know, whatever. And uh, then I read it through and I'm like, mm, no, I don't think I want to do that. <laughs> Got to come up with another two-part series. I couldn't get away from it. It just, I just kept coming. And my wife said to me, keep going back to that. I go, I know. I just, so we're doing Jude today. Okay. <laughs> Jude introduces himself in verse one. He says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. Now, when he puts himself in the classification of being a servant of Jesus Christ, what he's really saying in the Greek would be a bond slave. All right. Those who have subservient to or entirely at the disposal of their master. Someone who claims no will or no rights of their own. Their only desire is to serve their master. And of course, he's referring to Jesus Christ. And then he says the brother of James. And it's kind of interesting because he identifies himself as the brother of James. All right. And meaning he was probably not the apostle uh, named Jude, but most likely lined himself up with the family of Jesus. Matthew 30, 13, 55 says, it records the names of Jesus' brothers. Is it not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And not are his brothers James and Joseph and Simeon and Judas, which would be uh, changed to Jude? You know, after Judas Iscariot, nobody wanted to be called Judas. <laughs> so they, they shortened it to Jude. Uh, and not, not all his sisters with us. So Jesus had brothers and sisters. And so he would be the half-brother of Jesus. You know, Jesus was born out of immaculate conception. And um, this actually exposes one of the fallacies and teachings of the Catholic Church. Because they say Jesus, uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, remained a virgin. She was a perpetual virgin. All right? But she wasn't. All right? So Jude, uh, Jude comes out of uh, uh, you know, uh, a relationship of Joseph and Mary. So half-brother of Jesus. And like his older brother James, Jude didn't place his faith in Jesus until after Jesus, while Jesus was still alive. Only after the crucifixion and the resurrection did he become a follower of Jesus Christ. So we got a man writing this book that lived part of his life in skepticism. And for a time, he didn't believe. But eventually he came to a very powerful faith in Jesus Christ. And it's interesting that neither James nor Jude promote themselves as a relative of Christ. Now, it's interesting because if we're associated with famous people, which I, I'm not, so I can't. But if you know somebody famous, I mean, you're always dropping a name, right? <laughs> you're like, oh, yeah, I'm, you know, they're in my family, whatever. But James and Jude don't do that. And it's interesting because the commentator Matthew Henry observes Jude might have claimed kindred to Christ according to the flesh, but waves this and rather glories in being his servant. He goes on to say it's, greater, it's a greater honor to be a faithful servant of Jesus Christ than to be akin to him according to the flesh. And so this book of Jude is it's kind of difficult to date. 
He doesn't give any historical or places of interest in the book. He just writes the book. And so um, it's estimated that he um, probably wrote this epistle between 67 and 80 AD. And I know you need to know that, okay? It was an epistle not written to any particular group. Like Corinthians was written to the church at Corinth. And so we know that that letter was for them in particular. But Jude writes this letter. It's a, it's a general epistle. And it really is to be circulated among the body of Christ. And Jude's purpose in his letter was twofold. He wanted to expose the false teachers that had infiltrated the Christian community. Infiltration is a great war tactic. Back in World War II, the Germans actually used this against the Americans. When they were going into the Battle of the Bulge, what they did was they dressed up German soldiers with American uniforms and stood at key points of travel and would direct them in the wrong way. But the Americans caught on to that, and eventually they were either captured, killed, or they got away. All right, but when there's infiltration, it can be, it can be serious. But he wanted to encourage uh, Christians also to stand firm in the faith and fight for the truth. Jude's writing is somewhat edgy, all right? He uses few words and doesn't waste space dancing around the issues. The second part of verse 1, it, it says, to those who are called, beloved in God and the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. So we can see that this letter was intended for the saints, the believers. He said, first of all, that you're called, all right? Those that are called have accepted the call. They responded. That was something that they already knew. They knew Jesus as Lord and Savior. And you know what? I want to tell you something. God calls you by name and calls me by name. Now, you may have never heard your voice called out by God. All right, your name. Now, when my mother called me, when my mother called me, I knew why she was calling me. I knew if it was a good thing or if it wasn't a bad thing. It's by the way she said my name. If she dragged it out a little bit with a little attitude, I knew I was in trouble. And so I said, oh, I guess I got caught. <laughs> you know, it's, but... God called you by name. And for me, it was a gentle calling. It wasn't like I heard a voice and all of a sudden it was God was drawing me in slowly, bringing me closer. And I felt and finally responded to that. So Jude says you've been called. Now there's 52 references in scripture about you are called by name. I love Isaiah 43. One says you are called by name. You are mine. And so every one of us that are believers today, if you haven't responded to this, maybe God's calling you right now. He's called us by name. We're his. And then he says, loved by God. Okay? This represents what's presently happening in our lives today. We're loved by God. Ephesians uh, 2 verses 4 through 6 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even then, we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Because there is great love for us. And that's what we experience today. You're loved by God. And then he says, you're kept. 
by Jesus Christ. And that assures us of the future that we have. It talks about the future. God keeps a watchful care over the people that Jude was addressing and us and protects us from harm. Reminds us of the security and the assurance that we have in Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.22 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you've been called, you're loved, and you're kept. We could end right there, couldn't we? Okay, let's pray. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that would be a shocker, wouldn't it? <laughs> we go on in verse 2 and it says, May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. And what Jude was using this word multiplied is he was actually saying that we would experience an abundance, an abundance of mercy and love and peace in our lives. That it would be a, a growing thing that would mature in our lives. And that um, in our Christian experience, that we would continue to know that in a greater way. What a great opening. All right. Now, the closing is one of the best benedictions in all of the New Testament. But we're not going to get to it today. I'm sorry. We've got to hit some hard stuff first before we get through that. Okay. Verse 3 says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation... I found it necessary to write, appeal, appealing, write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. So when Jude sits down and decides to write this letter or epistle, he knows exactly what he wants to write about. He wants to write about the common salvation that we share. He had experienced a tremendous change in his life. And he wanted to express it. And he wanted to encourage people in salvation. I want you to picture this for a minute. So he sits down at a desk. He gets a piece of parchment. And he dips his quill in the ink. And he knows what he wants to write. And all of a sudden, something changes. I believe the Holy Spirit redirected him. Just like I kept coming back to this passage and was saying, I don't know if I want to, you know, God brought me back here. So, but he was... He was going to write something different than what he intended. All right? He was going to write, um, he was going to write about the common salvation, but by the direction of the Holy Spirit. I think God informed Jude that he wanted him to warn the people about a major problem that was taking place in the church. So Jude's purpose in uh, this letter was twofold. He wanted to expose false teachers that had infiltrated into the Christian uh, community and he wanted to encourage Christians to stand firm in their faith and fight for the truth. He wants the readers to know that the church has been infiltrated by the enemy. And because of this, we need to be ready to fight or defend the faith. We'll get to verse 4, but he says they crept in unnoticed. In other words, they didn't announce that they were there. They didn't announce what their intentions was. They came in and they infiltrated the church. So they blended into, uh, into the church, all right? They were accepted. There was nothing outstanding or, or that stood out to other people. But then once there, they began to push their agenda and their false teaching. Now, sometimes uh, we could think that maybe this was just for leaders. And I, and I say that it could be. 
But sometimes it's just for people that come into the church that have a different message and a different agenda. And we need to be aware of that. And then verse 3 says, Beloved, although I was eager to write to you, I wanted you to contend for the faith. All right? Contenders struggle for the faith. What he was saying here, it was, um, <clears throat> was kind of like the intensity that two wrestlers would experience. It wasn't just a one-time action, but a continuous action. Contending for the faith involves defending the faith against threat and attack and living godly lives that resist false teaching, also known as heresy. It was like a, it was a military term. It, it really kind of lended to hand-to-hand comment that you were in a battle, all right? And this is the way he pictures it. And Jude reminds us that there was, there's a time and a place for aggressive protection of the truth from those who would seek to tear it down. It's called apostasy. Apostasy is a departure from the faith. Apostasy was an issue in Jude's day, and I believe it's an issue in the church today. There were and are false teachers who have crept into the church attempting to pervert the message of Jesus Christ and the deity of Christ. Verse 4 says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed long ago, were designed for this condemnation, ungodly people who perverted the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now it's interesting because Jesus in Matthew 7.15 warned that there would, be, there would be false prophets. They would come. Paul in 2 Timothy 3.4 warned that false teachers would come. And then Peter in 2 Peter 2.1 warned also. All right? Jude did not say they would come. He said they're already here. One interpretation of contending for the faith is that they changed the grace of God into a license for immorality. They cheapen the grace of God. They deny the lordship of Jesus Christ. They reject his deity. And, they, and by living sinful lives that are contrary to Jesus' teaching. Titus 1.16 says they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable disobedient, unfit for good works. Pretty heavy stuff. John Piper says every Sunday professing Christians gather in God's house to worship, hear his word and fellowship. Yet many of these same holy appearing people lead lust-filled lives. They're fornicating, carrying on affairs, feeding their addictions to pornography. Tell me, he says, how can any of these enlightened believers continue to do such a thing? Now, we don't hear this that often, but I'm just sticking with the text, okay? All right, thank you. <laughs> In the next few verses, Jude refers to three cases of rebellion. Let's read verses 5 through 7. Now, I want to remind you, although you uh, once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling. He has kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities were likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now we know that God very graciously delivered the Israelites 
out of the bondage of Egypt. He led them out. He guided and directed them. It was a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He provided for them uh, food uh, for the daily journey, water. And uh, he protected them from their enemies in such a miraculous way. And his intent was to give them the land that he had promised to Abraham. He was going to lead them into the promised land. And just as they were almost there, and along the way, they rebelled against God. They even said to Moses, what did you bring us out in the desert so we could die here? It's better that we go back to Egypt and be slaves. When they were trapped by the Red Sea, they started complaining. And God miraculously delivered them and, and split the sea and, and, and destroyed their enemies. I mean, there was so much proof there that God was with them. And so God wanted to give them the land uh, that they could call their own. It was well watered. It was lush. They were on the border of Canaan, the promised land. And um, they were about to go in. So what they did was they sent 12 spies into the land. And they said, go check it out. We wanted you to check everything. They had, they had certain very detailed things that they were to look at. They were to look at the, at the people, at the cities, uh, the lifestyle. They were to look at the vegetation. They were to look at the soil. They wanted to know everything about. So these 12 spies spent 40 days going all throughout the land, checking it out, gathering information. They even brought back fruit from the land. It was a land that was, the Bible says, that it was flowing with milk and honey. It was a prosperous land, they probably wouldn't have to do much to flourish there. So when the 12 spies came back, 10 of them came back with a negative report. Oh yeah, the land is amazing, but they have giants and they're strong. They have walled cities. They'll kill us. They'll kill us and our children. We can't go in. And Joshua and Caleb said, let's go. God promised. He was like, they were ready. Let's go. God promised us the land. But the people got discouraged. And they didn't think that God could hold up and keep his promise. And so they rebelled. So God said, okay. He told Moses, they're not going in. And they wandered in the desert for 40 years until all those unbelievers and doubters died off. And the children that they wanted to protect, they said, they'll kill our children. And the children that they wanted to protect were the ones that went in and took the land. God was with them. We have an account of that. They lost their faith. They didn't believe God could keep his promise. In Numbers 32, it tells us that God was angry with them and said, anyone under the age of 20 will not enter. See, unbelief kept them for what God had for them. And you know what? Unbelief will keep you and I for what God has for us, the blessings of God, if we, don't hold, if we hold back and we don't believe God. See, unbelief comes from looking at ourselves. We're in a situation, we start evaluating and say, well, do I have enough? Am I able to? Do I have enough abilities? Do I have enough finances? Do whatever. And we start looking at it, and all of a sudden we're like, yeah, I don't know if I can do it, you know? Faith comes from looking at God and knowing when God promises something, he can definitely deliver on it. And then we go to verse uh, six and it gives a second illustration. It talks about the angels who had lost their position of authority because of their disobedience to God. We know from scripture that Satan caused a rebellion against God. 
And the Bible says that he took a third of his angels with him. All right. These were beings that were in the presence of God. They had a position of authority. And I don't know if you know this or not, but angels cannot die. All right. That's why Jesus was made a little lower than the angels before he went to the cross. And then God glorified him. So what Jesus, what God had to do is he had to lock them up in utter darkness. And that's where they've been since then. All right. Now, the Bible seems to indicate in the book of Revelation that in the end, I'm not going to be here. All right. And I hope you're not either. In the end, after we're gone, God's going to release these angels for a short period of time. I can't even imagine that for thousands of years, they've been in rebellion. They, 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 they're they're going to be let go to torment people. Man, what is that going to be like? You couldn't even put that in a movie. All right? That's going to be something else. But because of the rebellion against God, he had to chain them up and lock them up. Then the third illustration he gives in verse 7 is Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah was in the Jordan Valley. And again, the Jordan Valley was lush. I mean, it was, they had it so easy there. I mean, every, they could just throw a seed in the ground and sprout up. I mean, they, they didn't have to do a lot to provide for themselves. Maybe they had too much time on their hands. They got too idle and they started thinking about other things. But we know from Genesis chapter 19 that there was all sorts of sexual perversion. They chose that over following God. They had opportunity to repent because God will always give us the opportunity. But they turned further from God. They turned away. God went to Abraham and said, I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to wipe them out. And, God ple- and Abraham pleaded with God. He's God if- and this was, a, this was cities of like a lot of people. And so Abraham said, God, if I can find 50 righteous people. And God said, you find 50 righteous people, I'll spare them. Couldn't do it. God, how about 40? 30? 20? 10? And God said, if you can find 10 righteous people, I won't, I won't kill them. I'll let them live. And they couldn't even find 10 righteous people. All right? So here's a lot. I mean, you can read the account. It's, it's pretty graphic, and there's a lot of crazy stuff that goes on. But the angel comes to Lot and says, you have to leave. You and your wife and your two daughters, you have to leave. God's going to destroy this, this nation, this land, these cities. And, Ab- and it says in the Bible that Lot hesitated. It was so bad that the Bible said that the angels grabbed Lot and his wife and his daughters by the hands and pulled them out and led them out. That's the only way they got out. All right. So the people of Sodom and Gomorrah chose fornication and all sexual perversion over God. All right. And um, in these three instances, it shows God's aversion to sin. And Jude implies that God hasn't changed. Now, this is not a popular message today. You know, we don't want to hear that God judges sin, okay, because that might put us in an awkward spot. But it's it's the reality of the Bible, and we've got to look at it, okay? And God is still opposed to sin, unbelief, rebellion, and perversion. He can't tolerate. 
Now, in the next few verses, Jude gives the description of the false teachers. In verse 8, he characterizes these false teachers as dreamers. He says, Yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams to file the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. All right? Now, I don't know what he was referring to by calling them dreamers. I don't know if he was saying that they have these dreams that they think are right, and so they come and they, you know, try to institute this, or they were just so out of touch that they were like in dreamland, all right? But he charges them with defiling their bodies, rebelling against authority, and making fun of angels. And then in verse 9, it says that, but when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, <clears throat> Jude was referring to the previous verse, okay? Those who blaspheme, they blaspheme angels, all right? And this story comes out of Jewish tradition. It's a book that's recorded, it's recorded in a non-scriptural book called The Assumption of Moses. And Jude wasn't saying that this is scripture, but this was a writing that the people of the day would have been familiar with. And so we know that, um, we know that when Moses died, that Michael was sent to claim his body. Now, they never found Moses' body, okay? He just was buried, and they never found him. But the devil was contending with him about the Moses of bo uh, body of Moses. And the key point here is that Michael, the, one of the chief archangels, wasn't disputing against the enemy, okay? He was a powerful being in himself, but he refused to slander the devil. Instead, he yielded to God's authority and trusting him to rebuke the devil. We got people going around that think they have enough ability and strength to rebuke the enemy. Let me tell you something, all right? You or I are no challenge for the devil. We aren't. The only way we can overcome the devil is through the authority and power that we have in Jesus Christ. And so if I think I can go and, and tell, tell the devil what to do, I'm going to find myself in trouble, okay? Because I don't have it, and neither do you. And so what, um, what he was saying here is, all right, that Michael put, him, put God in between him and the devil. Let God rebuke him. Use God's authority. Use God's power. Now, years ago, um, and I don't know how you feel about this. I'm going to tell you a story and you can think I'm crazy, and maybe it'll confirm what you thought, all right? <laughs> I don't know, but I've had a few instances, okay, where I knew that I was dealing with a supernatural power. Uh, Lucy and I were married a year. Uh, we took on a position as a group house parents in Queens. We had teenage boys there. And one of the boys that came to live there, Oban, um, he was a small Slender kind of kid, not very athletic, all right? And we read his file, and his file was that, you know, as a kid, that his parents would chain him to the radiator when they would go out. And I suspect that they were involved in some kind of supernatural religious stuff that wasn't godly, all right? So Oban had an obsession. He had an obsession with evil, and he had an obsession with good. Sometimes he would ask me. He, he was always very polite. Mr. Summers used to call me. 
tell me about the love of God. One time I was telling him about the love of God. We had this whole conversation. Man, I was thinking that's, you know, what a great conversation. And then I walked away, and, and I heard something tell me, turn around. I turned around, he had a broom. He was coming after me. He was going to hit me with the broom. Yeah, this is what I was dealing with. So he was with us for about a year, okay? And probably five or six times during that year, like he had all these Bibles around his bed. That's what he thought kept him, you know? And five or six times during that year, he'd wake up during the night with a terrifying scream and just keep screaming and shaking. Now, we lived in the house. Lucy and I had an apartment on the third floor. The, the boys were on the second floor. And when I heard this scream, I come running down the stairs. Lucy was behind me. And he was being tormented. And I grabbed him from behind. I wrapped my arms around him. I wrapped my legs around him. I took him to the floor. And I began to pray. And Lucy would pray too. till finally, it would go. And the peace would be there. Now, what we found out was that before he came to us, he was in a larger facility, and it would take four or five staff members to hold him down. He would, I mean, I felt the power and the strength, the physical strength that he had, okay? And I knew that I was no match for that. And I knew the only thing I could do was pray. Now, you can think whatever you want about that. Um, you can, like I said, you can think I'm crazy. Okay, it's confirmed. <laughs> And Jude was saying that they were, they, had no, uh, they were so conceited that they even thought that they could do something that the archangel couldn't do. But Michael placed God between him and the devil. And then Jude uses historical examples from the Old Testament to characterize the false teachers as materialistic and immoral. Jude charges them and it, that, that lead others astray. In verse 10 it says that... Um, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So he was saying that they, they were led by their instincts, like an animal is, okay? There wasn't anything spiritual. It wasn't anything. They had no, no, no insight themselves. They were, they were just led by that. And he said, woe to them. And then he goes on in verse 11. He says, um, Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir and perish in Korah's rebellion. All right? Now, in verse 11, he uses Cain as an example. Now, we know the story of Cain. Cain had a brother, Abel, and God had told him to bring a sacrifice. It was to be a blood sacrifice. And Cain was a farmer, and he brought what he had. He gave his best, he thought. And when he found out that it wasn't acceptable, he got mad. He didn't want to change. He rebelled, all right? He wanted to worship God in his own way. And he became disobedient and unbelieving to the true God. He became full of envy and hatred and actually hated his brother so much because his sacrifice was accepted that he killed his brother. Balaam was hired by Balak to put a curse on the Israelites. It was for monetary gain that he would do this. And Korah's rebellion, Korah and his followers rejected the authority that Moses and Aaron had as leaders. They wanted to be the leaders, all right? Numbers chapter 16 tells us all about that. So they tried to override and, and, and assume the power, all right? They came against him. And we know that 
Moses consulted God and God said, stay away from them. And finally, God caused an earthquake to come. And the Bible says the earth swallowed them up. It just opened up and boom, they went in and they were gone. Okay. It's interesting because we see that these kind of things God can't tolerate. In verse 12 through 13, Jude goes on to characterize them as unreasonable uh, animals, instincts. They follow their instincts in verse 10. It says that um, these are um, hidden reefs at your love feast. Uh, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the wind, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea caught, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. That's pretty heavy stuff, man. How do you get through all that? He said they were unreasonable. Shepherds that only wanted to feed themselves. They were clouds without rain. They were barren trees without fruit. They're wild waves, like wild waves of the sea that would wash up their refuge. There were spots or blemishes at your love feasts. And they did all that without any respect or fear of God. They were self-serving. And then we go on in verses 14 and 15. It says, it was also about those uh, that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all who uh, convict and, and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all the uh, harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against. And it goes on, Jude mentions actually from a book called the Book of Enoch, again, not a, not a, Jude is not claiming that it's the inspired word of God, okay? But we know the story about Enoch, okay? Enoch walked with God. He was so close to God that he didn't even die. God just took him. He just went to heaven like boom. I mean, that's the way I want to go. I don't know about you. <laughs> just take me. <laughs> I want to go. All right, no. But um, he uses this as an illustration. It's part of Jewish literature. And again, it's a non-inspired biblical book. But Enoch walked with God and God took him. So Judah's using it for the sake of making a point. And he says, the Lord will come with, ten, uh, with thousands to overcome and bring judgment on those who are guilty of these actions. Now, if we go jump forward to Revelation, we can see that in Scripture, all right, that God will actually do this, all right? And then he goes on to, in verse 16, and he says this. They are grumblers, miscontentants, following their own sinful desires, and they are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. All right? They're grumblers. They're fault finders. They're lustful. They're boastful. They're flatterers. And so he really, really points out what false teachers are about. Now, Jude's letter is brief, and it describes men at their worst and God at his best. And as believers, I, I want to remind you this morning that we're already on the victorious side. See, I don't, I don't have to be afraid of the enemy. I don't have to be afraid of all that because God is in me. And as long as I use God and I don't try to fight the battle myself, I can stand against these things. If I try to do it on my own, trouble. All right? I'm not going to win. But God says we're victorious. 
and those who mock God's truth and, will follow, and who follow their own desires, and all the while claiming to be Christians, are the most dangerous kind of unbelievers that there are. These people pose a danger to themselves and to Christians that might be influenced by them. So what is our response? Our response goes back to the beginning of the book. He says, contend for the faith and live godly lives that resist false teaching. See, the real threat of the church is not for persecution, from persecution that happens outside the church. Sometimes we think, oh man, the church is being persecuted. They're gonna, they're gonna kill the church. The church is gonna, let me tell you something. Throughout history, anytime the church has been persecuted, it grows. It's amazing. God pours out his spirit. I mean, these people are giving their lives because they believe in Jesus and have faith. And you would think that, wow, they're dying off. But no, God brings others in because other people look at them and say, wow, if they can believe like that, there's got to be something to this. And God does that. All right. So persecution strengthens the church. But the greatest danger to the church is actually from within. And like Jude said, if the enemy can infiltrate inside, then he can do a lot of damage. Some of you have been part of churches that you saw that happen, man. The enemy came in, wrecked havoc, divisions, people left the Lord. I mean, it's just like, it's amazing. what. And we need to stand against this, all right? They desert sound doctrine and they live lives that deny the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so we're called to defend against these false teaching and again, live lives that are honoring of the cross. When you think about all that it cost Jesus for you and I, our life should reflect that in the way that we live. We should glorify God by the way. I'm not talking about perfection, okay? I'm not there yet and I don't plan on getting there because I can't and neither can you but I'm talking about desiring to do what God wants us to do and be committed to that and follow his ways. And like I said, this is a two-part series. And actually next week, Judo tells us in, a very in very practical ways how to contend for the faith. And it contains one of the most, I think, moving benedictions in all of the New Testament. So um, if you didn't like today, don't come back next week. But it, it, brings this, it brings this book and his teachings to a place where you say, yes. Yes, Lord. I want to I be that person. I want to follow you in that way. I want to contend for the faith. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for this time together. Thank you that we can gather as your people. Thank you for your word that guides and directs our lives. And Lord, I pray that um, you'd help us, Lord, to be the people you called us to be. Lord, that we would trust you and not doubt you. And God, that we would um, put our confidence in your word and who you say you are. And Lord, I pray that um, you would strengthen us in this day, that we'd be able to stand and contend for the faith. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.